What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love Love at at First first listen. Listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You've done all the Harry Potter. I'm <laughs> guilty as charged, yes. My agent had read it and said, there's a children's book, uh, and they'd like you to do it for an audio. And I said, okay, thinking, you know, that's half a day's job, isn't it? The cat looked at the dog, the dog looked at the cat. It was nice, the end. <laughs> and uh, that's a children's book. What could be better? Uh, it turned out to be a full novel length, but I started reading it, and I thought, this is rather good. So I... Uh, agreed to do it. And I turned up and there was Joe Rowling and uh, she likes to remind me of this. I said, you know, I think this is just wonderful. Uh, people are going to love it. It's such a great thing. She said, well, I have to tell you, I've actually, I've already written the second one and it's, uh, it's going to be published in two months. And I said, good for you. <laughs> good for you. Yeah, Keep on yeah. writing. Why not? You never know. You might get lucky. <laughs> oh my God. Hello, I'm Minnie Driver, and welcome to Mini Questions. I've always loved Proust's Questionnaire. It was originally an 18th century parlor game meant to reveal an individual's true nature. But with so many questions, there wasn't really an opportunity to expand on anything. So I took the format of Proust's Questionnaire and adapted what I think are seven of the most important questions you could ever ask someone. They are, when and where were you happiest? What is the quality you like least about yourself? What relationship, real or fictionalized, defines love for you? What question would you most like answered? What person, place or experience has shaped you the most? What would be your last meal? And can you tell me something in your life that has grown out of a personal disaster? The more people we ask, the more we begin to see what makes us similar and what makes us individual. 
I've gathered a group of really remarkable people who I'm honoured and humbled to have had a chance to engage with. My guest today is author, actor, director and broadcaster, intellectual explorer of rare talent, Stephen Fry. I grew up watching Stephen in the two genius British comedy series Blackadder and his show with Hugh Laurie, a bit of Fry and Laurie. But he's also memorably played in his Golden Globe nominated role as Oscar Wilde in the 1997 movie Wild. And he's been in numerous other fantastic films like Gosford Park and A Fish Called Wanda. He's fearlessly explored his own experience with bipolar disorder in the documentary The Secret Life of a Manic Depressive, and since 2011 has served as the president of the mental health charity Mind. Stephen is a prolific writer to boot and has four novels and three autobiographies in print. I was completely transported by our conversation. Talking to him is like trying to keep up with a shooting star. We talked about everything from Sherlock Holmes to Amazonian tree frogs to the time he went to prison for credit card theft. This is the first half of a wonderful two-part episode. When I was thinking about the questions, because I I really love Proust's questionnaire. Mm. I've always loved it. I've always loved listening to people's different answers. They, They do one in Vanity Fair, don't they? That might have been where I first discovered it. And then I went back and read his sort of full narrative and then some really fantastically Victorian responses. <laughs> I chose where and when you were happiest as the first question, largely because we put such a premium on being happy. But I also think that happiness Maybe it's just from where I sit at 51. It includes so much. It's the balance to everything. So when I ask that question, I mean it as largely as you can conceive it, really. Yes. Well, I remember there was a time a few years ago, maybe 20, when I was desperately trying to give up smoking and all kinds of other things. And I looked into this this thing called neuro-linguistic programming. I, I'm sure you're aware of it. It's a grand title for a way of making your, making your mind obey your will, if you like. You, you want to do something like giving up smoking, but something's getting in the way, both physical addiction, of course, and something else. We're all familiar with that. It's not easy to will but it's easy to will to will. In other words, you want to want something, <laughs> yes. but, but it's very hard for it. Anyway, neuro-linguistic programming, one of the things they do is they ask you to remember a time, just a snapshot in your memory, when you know you are just unbounded in your happiness. You think of something, a sunny day uh, on the beach or in a park, uh, maybe that you were very young, so your mother's let you skip along to buy an ice cream and you're looking down at the ducks with your brother and everybody's with you and you're content. You then do something physical like pull at your earlobe while enjoying that memory and you keep twisting your ear and you do that several times until the idea being all you have to do is twist your earlobe and you will get that memory. And I, I have to say... I still think to that moment in a park with a with a with a an ice cream, and I can get a what feels on the inside to be a beatific smile to spread across my face, and I remember happiness. And anyway, that's a thing; that's an exercise you do. So, if ever I see you twisting your earlobe <laughs> at a party, I'll know that you're secretly that's thinking right. about the ducks and the ice cream. 
Exactly. And the idea is you do that when you want a cigarette or you want something, Brilliant. you know, because it, it fills you with the happiness, possibly even with the self-supplied drugs, you know, the noradrenaline, the serotonin, the melatonin, yeah. all, et cetera, et cetera, the endorphins and all, all that. And maybe it does work, but that was a, an interesting time. But of course... That's a snapshot. It's a vertical moment of happiness, one little mm. drop of bliss. But I, I would say probably, and this only works looking back, because at the time you're young, and when you're young, you're never happy. You're always angst-ridden or wanting to be better looking or wanting to take someone to bed or wanting to be asked to go to bed or, or you know, just not feeling clever enough or confident, all the rest of it. But... Those three years I had at university, and particularly the last year when Hugh Laurie became my best friend and we started mm. writing comedy and realising that we were doing something that gave others pleasure. We could hear the laughter and we felt just charged with optimism and, and it was justified, you know, because we were very lucky. And, you know, with me and Hugh and Emma Thompson and, and, our, and Tony Slattery, our year at, uh, at university, it was a great Footlights collection, I mean, honestly. I still have to pinch myself to realise that, but for all kinds of extraordinary provisional contingent things, it might never have happened. I might have been a year earlier or two years earlier or never have got there and who knows. Did Rowan Atkinson go to Cambridge? He, he went to the other place. Oh, he went <laughs> to the other place. We'll not mention yeah. that. But I'll tell you a scene <laughs> which was one of the happiest moments of my life was we were performing our, our review in Edinburgh. It happened to be that year in Edinburgh, 81, was the first year of a new award called the Perrier Award, which was going to be given to supposedly the, the best comedy show on the fringe, or at least what the judges thought was the best. One thing we were certain of is that they wouldn't give it to Boo, Cambridge, nah, snobs, you know, all the horror of that. Uh, but anyway, we were doing the show and we finished it and we bowed and there was cheers and applause and all the things that you live for. And then suddenly the applause went wild while we were bowing. And I saw people looking what I thought behind me. So I turned round and there was this um, figure, uh, Rowan Atkinson, standing <laughs> at the back of the stage on our show. Now, he was already a household name because uh, Not the Nine O'Clock News had, had, I think, had done two series already and was a oh, huge my. hit. And he was holding something and he came forward, um, uh, um, <laughs> ladies and um, gentlemen. And he <laughs> announced that we had won the Perry Award and handed it to us. Oh. And there were people waiting in, in our dressing room from the BBC asking if they could show our, our review on BBC Two. And then the oh next God. night, some people from ITV, which developed into a series with uh, Robbie Coltrane and Ben Alton. And I mean, I, I, you know, I, I sort of resist telling this story because it cast me as the luckiest bastard in the world. And we were. It's as if sometimes, and I've heard younger comics and actors saying this, that they could almost see the door closing in the 1980s and 90s on that sort of thing, you know, a graduate comedy from, especially from Oxbridge, uh, just waltzing into the BBC. I think it's great. I'm so grateful <laughs> that I grew up watching what you chaps were doing and that that was the cornerstone of comedy for me. 
And growing up and seeing, it's extraordinary because I was old enough to really laugh and really understand mm. the jokes. But then to go on and see what everybody did, what Emma did, what Hugh Laurie did, what you have done, what Rowan has done, what Simon Curtis has done. It's, it's so yeah. inspiring because that's all I wanted to do was be a performer. But I didn't have a gang. I always wished they'd had a gang. I was about to say, when I'm asked, and as I'm sure you are, by young drama students or teenagers hoping to go into some aspect of the performing arts, uh, uh, asked to give advice, uh, I can only say, cluster around your friends who have a similar ambition and make your own shows, make your own whatever it is, and get your friends to come and watch them. Because the more you perform, even if it's barely to a any kind of paying audience, but the more you do it, the more you get the, the confidence and the self-belief and the the idea in your head that you're allowed to, you know, because, you know, we all grew up watching these glamorous figures. You know, I saw Peter Cook and John Cleese on the Parkinson show or Peter Sellers or whoever it might be, and they were behind the glass in every sense. The idea that one could even tread any aspect of their boards, as it were, was just out of sight. And slowly, because of writing with friends and kind of finding out how audiences behave and feeling that one belongs on a stage, it gives one this fabulous idea that you could be part of that huge family of people who are the clowns, the uh, the circus and the, the entertainers. Yeah. I was constantly deputising dolls to be my audience and they always yes. loved everything I, I did. Of course. It was a standing ovation every time. <laughs> as my mother used to say when I got, I used to get my brother to do plays behind a curtain as well. In the, and my mother used to say, without being aware of the preposterousness of the remark, you were both the best thing in it. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what? My mother actually said something somewhat similar after a particularly obscure film that I'd done. And she was like, Gosh, you know, both people who see that will love it. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Jamila Jamil here. You may know me from my role in The Good Place or from She-Hulk or from social media and my activism. I Weigh basically started as a social movement and my podcast is one of my truly greatest achievements. It's a podcast against shame and a place for us to have really honest and truly inclusive conversations. I love connecting with people. I love learning. I have a lot to learn and I'm inviting you along with me. On I Weigh with Jamila Jamil, I have friends, activists, specialists and absolute heroes join me to teach me from their experience and expertise. People like Conan O'Brien, Jane Fonda, Roxanne Gay, Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Byer, Alok, Kelly Roland and more. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil has new episodes out every Tuesday and you can find the show on earwolf.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top 
of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. What relationship, real or fictionalized, defines love for you? In fact, will you say real and fictionalized? Because I want to hear about lovers and defining love with fictionalized characters as well as the real one. Mm. Well, I think first love is fictional love to some extent. Oh, good one. It's so overwhelming. Its expectations are so high. It consumes the self. It becomes so obsessive and infatuated. and, And when I was 14 and a half, 15, I fell in love with a boy at school. And... I had no idea that I was capable of feeling such things. They weren't erotic. No, part of them, I suppose, must obviously have been erotic, but they were mostly to do with beauty and lyricism and absolute devotion. And uh, every waking moment was concerned with trying to follow the path that I thought he would be taking between this school block and that school block, or he had games that day, and so he'd be, you know, be on the rugger field at this time or cricket field at that time. And, uh, you know, my whole life was devoted to it. And I suddenly realised that the thing I had hated as a child, this propensity of films 
to wander off into kissing scenes when there was a good adventure going on. <laughs> what, mummy? Why are they kissing? You know, it's, uh, the Germans are around the corner, and they suddenly he's looking down into her face and they're smooching and wasting time. And what's it all about? It just struck, and all song lyrics were loving you. I mean, the Beatles were around. You know, my seventh birthday treat was to go and see a hard day's night. You know, and I loved that. Was, there was no none of that soppiness. But the lyrics were all she loves you and and love, 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 and all. You need is love and love this and love that. And I, it made no sense. And the poems one was being taught at school were all about love. And suddenly it hit me that it was the only thing in the world that mattered, mm. that nothing else had any significance at all except this absolute loss of self into the idea of someone else. And this understanding of why beauty was so important. And it, it translated into a great sort of dippy adoration of spring and trees and blossom and birds. And... <laughs> Did you ever get to tell him that you loved him? Uh, he knew. I, I never quite expressed it in those ways. I think it was quite, probably quite hard to, to hide, to hide we it. We had a little rumpy, pumpy tussle in the grass once. and that was Oh, it. good. <laughs> oh, good. But that, that was fictional in as much as it, was, it belonged to a Petrarchian idea of ideal love or a Shakespearean sonnet idea or whatever, you know, it, it was absolutely um, nothing to do with what I now think of as love, which is naturally me and my husband, which is contentment, companionship. Yes, I mean, all the, all the joy of our first meeting and realising we were soulmates and made for each other and the happiness and the extra special pleasure that it coincided exactly with the time when we could get married legally in, in this country, which was uh, fabulous. I think that's rather a good trajectory to begin with a fictionalised reality mm. and to wind up in really something, you know, the marriage between two men or two women was a complete fiction until very recently. I think that's a wonderful path to have begun in that place and to have wound up in this other place. I think that's a beautiful bookend and we should all be so lucky. And that you got rumpy pumpy out of like <laughs> yes. the, yeah, but the, the fact that it was actualized, that this yeah. ideal yeah. devotion yeah. of, you know, sneaking around buildings, staring at your, your love, that it yeah. actually materialized into the long grass makes me yes. very happy. It, it, it was <laughs> made me happy too, as you can imagine. <laughs> Though underneath it was the misery of the realization that for him, it might've been an amusing episode uh, but for me, it was part of what I absolutely instinctively understood was my nature, which was that I would only ever fall in love with people of my own sex and that I was never going to be therefore accepted by society because that same knowledge had driven me to the library because in those days, of course, there was no online, there was no affirmation or vindication of sexuality available except in the forbidden byways of literature, not pornography, but uh, stories like Oscar Wilde's trial or various other people exiled to Morocco and Capri and the Mediterranean generally, where a slightly more louche lifestyle was acceptable. And otherwise, it was skulking in shadows. And it was, you know, it was the terrible fear of the police courts and, 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 and shame. Did you think of that at 14 and 15 when you first fell in love? I was aware that my whole interior life would have to be a secret. At least I thought that would, would be a secret that I would never be able to share with anyone except through books, you know, and for all the horrors we attribute to social media and email and the whole digital world now, 
it, had that been available to me, it would have completely altered the way I felt because I would have been more instantly to discover that I was not alone. Yes. And that I was not criminal. I was not creepy. I was not a pervert who should be punished. Uh, because I knew that although sex was important, it was really love that was the massive thing. And that's, of course, what has been allowed by this acceptance and legislation and everything is people can love each other, you know? Yeah, exactly. What is the quality you like least about yourself? I give answers that people could get very annoyed by because they sound like false modesty or absurd expectations. But I know that as far as other people are concerned, I'm not lazy, and yet I still feel lazy in myself. I still feel there's always more I could do. And my husband is driven crazy by my need not to see a single red notification badge in my email box. I have to have <laughs> answered everything. I have to have done the thank you letters and the bread and button letters, and I have to be on top of things. And I always say to him, it's because I so hate it, I want to get it out of the way. I'm the same with washing up or anything. It's it's a peculiar... But that seems like a very good thing. That doesn't seem like a bad thing at all. I wish I did the washing up. No, I know it's not a bad thing. That It annoys me that I'm so that I'm so anxious about it and I can't be more relaxed. But you're right, it's not the thing I hate about myself most. I think my anxiety to please, my inability to to rest until I feel that everybody is unoffended by me and possibly even likes me or is pleased with me and uh, doesn't come away with a, a wrong idea about me or what I think is a wrong idea about me. And I'm aware that this desire to please is transparent. That's to say others can see it. I mean, I've actually happened. I don't seek them out, but I've happened on the odd phrase online or in the press saying his you know, overwhelming desire to be liked or whatever. And I think, yeah, they're, they're right. And it's, you know, the people I most like aren't like me. I suppose that's the way I should put it. That, you know, they, it's not that they absolutely don't care a hoot what people think about them and, and are sort of quite happy to be cruel and unkind or, um, you know, dismissive or not to answer letters or whatever. It, it's not that. It's just that it doesn't seem to possess them quite as it does me. I don't know where it comes from. But it's a, it's a desire to please. It's that little Jack Horner, what a good boy am I sort of thing that I know is very obvious in me. Well, I think you're great. <laughs> you see, it's, I've won. I've got You've the done it. Done oh, God. Cross that off the list. <laughs> Tick, at least until tomorrow. Hello. Jamila Jamil here. You may know me from my role in The Good Place or from She-Hulk or from social media and my activism. I Weigh basically started as a social movement and my podcast is one of my truly greatest achievements. It's a podcast against shame and a place for us to have really honest and truly inclusive conversations. I love connecting with people. I love learning. I have a lot to learn and I'm inviting you along with me. On I Weigh with Jamila Jamil, I have friends, activists, specialists and absolute heroes join me to teach me from their experience and expertise. People like Conan O'Brien, Jane Fonda, Roxanne Gay, Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Byer, Alok, Kelly Rowland, and more. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil has new episodes out every Tuesday and you can find the show on earwolf.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> 
You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. She's breathing right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose, I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready. You know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. What person, place, or experience has most altered your life? Well, <laughs> I, I think... I would go back to an occasion. My parents grew up in the country in quite a large house. It's not Dunton Abbey, but it, you know, it, it was big and it was very old fashioned. It wasn't on the mains water. We had a sort of pump house uh, somewhere in the in the back to pump up the water, and the bread man would come on a horse and cart. To, you know, when I was young, it was a very rural and peculiar and fun sort of life, I suppose, to grow up in. But one thing my parents did not like was television. There was one kept in a cupboard somewhere. It was a tiny little thing. Uh, and if, if a member of the royal family married or got 
or died, or Winston Churchill's funeral, say, or the moon landing, the television would be got out and sat in a corner and told to behave itself and then <laughs> put away again. But occasionally, my father, the, the stable block of the house had been converted to a laboratory for my father, as a physicist inventor sort of figure. And so he would sometimes spend days over there. He'd be like Sherlock Holmes, you know, just completely lost amongst his equipment. And, and then I would especially if it was raining and there was nothing else to do, I would take the television out and secretly watch it. One afternoon, a Sunday afternoon, I turned it on and it, something had just started and people were talking to each other in the most extraordinary way. I'd never heard anything like it. It wasn't Shakespeare, but it wasn't contemporary. I was not old enough to recognise it, but I was old enough to recognise that it was stunning. And I watched it with my mouth open because of the way people were speaking. And it finished with a curtain dropping, so the camera had sort of been inside in it, a real world, and then at the end it pulled back and the curtain fell, as if to suggest that it was a play. So I rushed off to see my mother, and there was a particular line in it. You know how something, when a movie's really good, you remember almost every detail of it? And when a movie is colossal garbage, you cannot remember a single scene. Or, and, and I remembered so much of this, just watching it once, including this speech, where a man, whom I subsequently discovered was the actor Michael Dennison, says to a woman, whom I subsequently discovered was the actress Dorothy Tutin, he said, I hope I will not in any way offend you if I say that you seem to me to be the visible personification of absolute perfection. And I thought that was the most extraordinary line I'd ever... It was funny because, of course... If you declare love to someone, you don't use Latinate words like visible personification of absolute perfection. You say, I love you, you're gorgeous. You know, that's what, but, and yet it was a beautiful compliment and courtly. And, and so I ran to my mother and said, Mother, I hope I shan't offend you if I say that you seem to me to be in every way the visible personification of absolute perfection. She said, what are you talking about? And I said, I've seen this thing. And I explained it. She said, oh, that was the importance of being earnest. <gasps> And I said, well, what is it? And she explained it was a play. Now, we were so deep in the country that we're miles, as Sidney Smith once said, miles, simply miles from the nearest lemon. But we, <laughs> we, were, we, were, we were also miles from the nearest library. And so what we what had in those days, I don't know if they still do, this little grey van, the kind, yeah. the kind that would be called a pantechnicon. Used to we come had around. a van like that, a library van, yeah. A mobile library, yeah. And it would come to, there was a crossing of the roads about a quarter of a mile from our house, uh, two lanes met, and it would stop there on Thursday afternoons. Would you wait for it? Yeah, <laughs> I, I waited for it on the corner. The driver got out and wheezed his way round the front bonnet and opened the side door, let down the steps and patted my bottom oh, as Lord. I went into the library. <laughs> Off it goes, Sonny. <laughs> and, and there was a little lady in there with powdery soft cheeks and little you know, little glasses on a chain. And uh, I asked her if she had The Importance of Being Earnest by Mr. Oscar Wilde. She, she gave me this collection of his comic plays, four of them, Women of No Importance, uh, Ideal Husband and Lady Fandomir's Wind. <laughs> Love Lady Fandomir's Wind. I, I got those. <laughs> and... Um, and I read them, for, for, I kept them for the week and I read until I, and I knew the importance almost off by heart. I could still quote most of it. And, and I just fell in love with the language. And then I went back and I said, have you got any more by this 
writer, and she stamped out a new book, The Complete Works of Oscar Wilde. Uh, I took them home and I read these fairy stories, these amazing stories about the happy prince and the young king and all these. And some I didn't understand. There were some very sort of grown-up essays like The Soul of Man Under Socialism and and one which we, we should be reading now called The Truth of Masks. Yes. <laughs> very appropriate. <laughs> and then I went back the next week and I said, have you got any more? And she said, well, if that's a The Complete Works, then that's probably the complete works and I said oh and <laughs> oh, so I started no. to, to look round and then I saw a book called The Trials of Oscar Wilde by a man called L. Montgomery Hyde she said I'm not sure that's appropriate for you and I said no no I'm I'm studying this writer you know I was sort of 11 or something <laughs> um, <laughs> sure. so she stamped it out let me read it and there I read about this extraordinary man his warmth his generosity his wit his gift his genius for friendship um, mm. And then I, I kind of lived with him as he was pulled down into the greatest and most terrible scandal of the Victorian age and ended up in Paris, despised and rejected of men, as Isaiah puts it, and died a miserable death thinking he would be perhaps forgotten or always in disgrace in men's eyes. And and it just took the wind out of myself because I knew that I had that thing in me, that the reason he was pulled down would be the reason I might too. Mm. This belief that I'd never be accepted. So there was, on the one hand, there was the joy of discovering literature and how language can, because many, I can't, I can't dance, I can't paint, draw, you know, I can't, I'm not athletic. Those ways people have of expressing joy and delight and texture and thrill, all for me are in words proceeding out of my mouth or put on a page. And in our culture, not uniquely, I think, we're not encouraged to believe that language, which is the gift we all share, unless there's a very strong dysfunction, is not just for saying pass the mustard and where's the toilet, <laughs> but it is actually something that can be used to entrance and delight and seduce and beguile and thrill and deceive and create as much art as a paintbrush or a cello can, just in the sound of the tongue hitting the back of the teeth. There's a mm. beauty and a majesty and a glory. It's one of the reasons I admire people like Eminem and some of the great hip-hop artists is because they have brought language really back into popular art in, in a strong way. And, and Oscar was the first to do that. He lit that light and many other things. So I think everything flowed from that. If it, it woke mm. me up. That's what, that's what lit a fire in me that still, still burns. Oh, Stephen, I love that so much. I had, I had Orson Welles reading The Selfish Giant on a record. Oh that I listened to when I was about five or six, and I used to- This is my garden. <laughs> it, is, it is so brilliant. Anyone find it, everybody should listen to it. The children are my flowers. Yes, it's glorious. I only have to hear those and I can smell an old-fashioned gramophone and the records <laughs> that went on it. You know that dusty I smell do. as it warmed up? <laughs> Crackle. Join me next week for the second half of my conversation with Stephen Fry. Mini Questions is hosted and written by me, Mini Driver. Supervising producer, Aaron Kaufman. Producer, Morgan Lavoy. Research assistant, Marissa Brown. Original music, Sorry Baby, by Mini Driver. 
Additional music by Aaron Kaufman. Executive produced by me, Minnie Driver. Special thanks to Jim Nicolay, Will Pearson, Addison O'Day, Lisa Castella and Anique Oppenheim at WKPR, Dela Pescador, Kate Driver and Jason Weinberg, and for constantly solicited tech support, Henry Driver. Hello, Jamila Jamil here. You may know me from my role in The Good Place or from She-Hulk or from social media and my activism. I Weigh basically started as a social movement and my podcast is one of my truly greatest achievements. It's a podcast against shame and a place for us to have really honest and truly inclusive conversations. I love connecting with people. I love learning. I have a lot to learn and I'm inviting you along with me. On I Weigh with Jamila Jamil, I have friends, activists, specialists and absolute heroes join me to teach me from their experience and expertise. People like Conan O'Brien, Jane Fonda, Roxanne Gay, Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Byer, Alok, Kelly Rowe, Roland, and more. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil has new episodes out every Tuesday and you can find the show on earwolf.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at First, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 